0: This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. And we are two lifelong friends on a mission to demystify the world of Wall Street and give you the skinny on the highest paying jobs and all that financial mumbo jumbo that you hear people talking about but are too afraid to ask what it is they are actually saying. And for those of you just tuning in, this is part two of our three-part series talking about one of the biggest, craziest deals in history, the leveraged buyout and subsequent bankruptcy of Caesar's Palace. So if you haven't listened to part one, we did a deep dive into the leveraged buyout or LBO of the casino and hotel company formerly known as Harrah's, then rebranded as Caesars by the private equity giants Apollo and TPG. And that deal closed in 2008. And we're talking about all of this through the framework of Sujit Indap and Max Frum's book, The Caesars Palace Coup, which we read together. This is part two. This is going to be our distressed debt and credit deep dive. We're gonna talk about the series of restructuring deals that took place over the better part of the following decade to try and stave off bankruptcy. And each one of these restructuring deals illustrates a critical concept for anyone who's interested in, you name it, private equity, private credit, hedge fund investing, credit derivatives trading, asset management, the whole shebang. And spoiler alert, Caesars ultimately went bankrupt and all the insane backstabbing and like Lady Macbeth machinations of these titans of private equity all came home to roost when all the investors in the deal ultimately ended up suing each other. And then in part three, we're actually going to bring on the author and Financial Times writer Sajid Indap to get the inside scoop on how he actually sourced this incredible story. Uh, But (laughs) So there's a lot to do today, a lot to talk about. But before we get into it, Kristen, how are you doing in the frenzy here, like leading up to the holidays?
1: We are getting ready to go fly down to visit my in-laws, which I'm uh-huh. actually like really upset about. I wish we were staying here. We finally have a nice house and we can have a proper Christmas here, but none of our family is around. So oh, we're like, yeah. all right, fine. So we're, we're leaving on Christmas Eve and then we're coming back New Year's Eve. So I basically need to grab a whole bunch of presents because we bought presents. And when, when we come back, they're like, oh, look, Santa visited this house too. Oh, yes. Um, are you
0: doing Christmas morning at your in-laws? Yeah. God, yeah, we've probably.
1: actually done that for. I mean, we've well, no, literally never done. No, no, no. We've we've actually never had Christmas at our house because living oh, in New York, really? it's just like, yeah, we were either in Florida with my parents or we were in Kiowa with John's. So oh, I didn't know that. We, mm-hmm. And his mom does a really good job. She gets the kids a bunch of presents, which basically stay down at their place. Like Smart. I'm like, we're not bringing this stuff back. Yeah. And especially when we had like a teeny apartment. I was like, I don't want to have crap, you know, but I basically now need to wrap a whole bunch of presents. I need to pack and then actually this morning, I was getting ready to bring my three-year-old to school and turns out she has no school. So <laughs> that was a unpleasant a surprise. surprise. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> and it's so funny. Again, in like classic child fashion, the three-year-olds, every time we have to go to school, she's like, I don't want to go to school. I want to stay home. And then today, of course, she's crying. She wants to go to school and play with her friends. And I'm just right. like, literally, of course <laughs> you do. So yeah. So it's chaos here. We had a have a leak in our house. Our builder is fixing a leak. So yeah. Um. How are you, Jen? <laughs> I'm, I'm good. We
0: just got back. So we did the whirlwind travel early this year. We did a quick family getaway to Atlantis in the Bahamas, which I was nervous about. I had gone there, I don't know, 25 years ago as a kid. And when you go to a hotel that you're like, I went to this 25 years ago, you're like, is this going to be ancient and crumbling? But they've actually done a really nice job. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) we're talking about here. It's funny because the original towers of Atlantis have a very Vegas vibe. There's the casino Mm. in the middle of it. There's all these shops, like an indoor mall. We stayed at, there are two newer outposts that they've built One is Mm -hmm. more high-end and definitely geared towards adults only. But we stayed at this portion called The Reef. And it was really nice, actually, because you can walk to a water park, but you're not Mm. living in a water park. The only problem was is it was 70 degrees with about 20-mile-an-hour winds. So, I mean, it was freezing. Imagine being on like a lazy river when it's barely 70 degrees and the wind is blowing and you're like in the shade because everything is designed, obviously, to help people stay cool in an extremely warm environment. So I was wearing the turtleneck that you're wearing (laughs) on the lazy river, like trying to stay warm. Oh my
1: goodness. (laughs) Well, there was some crazy storm over the last few days that came up the East Coast. And that's actually what happened is we had been getting water in our basement. We couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Mm -hmm. Randomly water would appear. We couldn't find it. And then finally, when we had this massive rainstorm, I think it was on Monday, (laughs) we had like this waterfall just coming through our basement window. And we're like, look, there's the issue. So (laughs) yeah. (laughs) yeah,
0: Uh, I mean, that was such a triggering video. That you sent me because I don't know if you remember this when we bought our first home as a family when I was in third grade. We bought like some builder spec house that they couldn't sell and it was all we could afford at the time. My
1: parents worked so hard to be able to get us. I remember that house. I remember it being this like amazing house. Like to me it was like the fanciest because like new builds and like it looked very
0: it was new build by a builder who ultimately like fled the state and changed their name oh, no. to avoid being in a lawsuit <laughs> because they had built it basically at the bottom of a pond <laughs> that happened to be dry during the building. And of so, course. our first winter in the house, we had six feet of water in the basement. I don't know if you remember this. I do. And it was. I do. Yeah, it yeah. was so traumatic, and that that house was on an acre of land and we had to pay to raise the entire level of the property, something like two feet. I mean, it was insane how much we had to do. So seeing that, I'm like, oh my God, this is so triggering (laughs) thinking about a wet basement in the Boston area in the winter. This was my childhood.
1: Now, of course, we
0: live in Charlotte, which has more water issues than any Mm landlocked city that you could imagine because we have red clay in our soil and you can't dig. So virtually no one has Mm -hmm. basements here unless they're walkout basements.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, again, my in-laws, it's low country, right? Like in South Carolina, literally is called low country. That's Mm -hmm. not, that doesn't sound great when you have these big storms.
0: All right. Well, so speaking of storms, I don't know if that was a good transition or not, but we're going to talk about the storm that ensued after the LBO of Caesars Palace closed. So when we were talking about the deal originally, just to refresh, okay, when the LBO closed in 2008, we had Caesars Parent. And when we tried to explain this in our First episode we use the analogy of kim kardashian (laughs) and we are now wedded to it because we can't go back there's no going back okay the way to think about this is that caesar's parent is -hmm. like kim kardashian the person yeah under the parent we had the operating company or the opco which is the workhorse where all the cash flows were coming in. We said this is like Skims or Kim's Instagram account where she gets paid like, I don't know, one and a half million dollars to post a weight loss team. And
1: I think she has also a makeup line or she has a bunch of actually like very profitable businesses and then also her private equity firm, which I haven't even (laughs) touched on, but (laughs) that's a whole different animal.
0: That's exactly right. So again, that's kind of the workhorse was the operating company. And then they set up a special vehicle called the Property Company or Propco, where some of the most valuable real estate in this casino and hotel company, it was held separately there. So it could be used as collateral to raise additional debt in the form of commercial mortgage-backed securities, which we call CMBS. And again, we said all that was akin to like, Kim's Calabasas mansions or wherever her real estate portfolio is.
1: Again, maybe not the best analogy. I like it. No, I love this analogy. And by the way, I'm coming back to it. But yeah, so in the prior episode, we touched on capital structure. In any capital structure, we have a stack of investments, right? Ranging from least risky to most risky. So least risky are the senior secured creditors. So in other words, these lenders who have lent money to the company and are compensated with interest every six months. Now, the loans, again, as we said, are secured with some kind of collateral that the company would forfeit if there was any kind of event of default, if they can't make the interest payments. So it's the same idea when you buy a house and you take out a loan from the bank. That loan is collateralized by the house. So you have to get an appraisal. You have to see what the house is worth. And that's gonna impact how much the bank is willing to lend you because if something goes wrong, they can literally take over your house. They can foreclose on you if you default. And this also brings up, I think, an important point that just like with the Kim Kardashian example, companies mm-hmm. can take out debt at different levels, so to speak. You could have the company and they could take out debt at the Opco level. So Skims could take out debt that's backed by the cash flows of just the Skims business. You could take out a mortgage, but it's secured by the assets of the house in that, mm-hmm. like the Calabasas Kim Kardashian real estate portfolio. Now you could also have Kim Kardashian just take out money herself potentially, but depending on which entity is getting the debt, it impacts what those lenders are able to go after in a bankruptcy. So if for whatever reason, Kim Kardashian were to file bankruptcy, you have these lenders who can go after the skims cash flows. Whoever lent money to Kim Kardashian, the persona, they are gonna not have the first claim on the skim cash flows. Or you can't seize her house. You can't (laughs) seize her house because there are other lenders that can seize her house. So I think that's a really interesting point and something that people don't often talk about. So same thing here, only the collateral is whatever the assets of the company are that are specified in these loans. So you have unsecured creditors, meaning they do not have the assets. They have higher risk, but because they have that higher risk, they're going to get a higher interest payment. Mm -hmm. People who have a higher risk appetite and want to collect that higher coupon, they're taking on that risk and they're okay with that. And that goes on until you get to the equity investors who participate in the most upside. When things go well for the company, but they're also typically left with nothing if things go bad. And so our equity investors in a private equity deal are the private equity firms, so Apollo and TPG in this case, who, along with the co-investors, had invested $6 billion in equity in the LBO. Mm -hmm. Now, there was actually an additional $24 billion worth of debt at varying levels of riskiness held by the biggest names in private credit, like Oaktree, as well as hedge funds like Elliott, Paulson, et cetera.
0: Exactly. And these are going to be the names that then come into play. As all of this ultimately goes bad, (laughs) all of these people were ultimately jockeying to position themselves as close to the front of the line to get a handout in the event of a bankruptcy. So we talked about the structure of the deal. Now, remember, this deal took a really long time to get to the finish line. There were a number of hurdles to jump through. Remember, we talked about this being a huge deal, first of all. There's multiple players here. This isn't just one private equity firm, but two together. And the more cooks Mm -hmm. in the kitchen, the more complex it gets. And there were idiosyncrasies specific to this deal, namely things like getting gaming licenses in all the different states where they were operating that made it take longer. So again, even though this deal was announced in 2006, it didn't close until 2008. And by the time it closed, the deal closed on January 28th, 2008. For context, Bear (laughs) Stearns went bankrupt in March
1: and Mm -hmm. Lehman went bankrupt in September so again just to back up they were looking at this in 2006 everything was rosy everything was great they expected the valuation of the entire business to grow something like 40 percent so go from say a 30 billion dollar enterprise value to a 40 billion dollar enterprise value Mm -hmm. but if you watch any of our lbo videos you know that the enterprise value is not what we care about it's like when you buy a house you don't necessarily care what happens to the value of your house you care about the equity you put in your home so if you use leverage right if you use debt you actually can get a much better return. Your equity can double, triple, even if the value of the whole house only goes up or the value of the whole firm only goes up, whatever, 25%, because over the time period, you're paying down the debt, which is causing the equity to grow. But the reality is what happened is instead of the value going up, the value goes down.
0: We're staring down the economy of the post-global financial crisis. No one's going to casinos and going to hotels and partying. So as things started to go bad, TPG and Apollo, the two private equity investors in the deal, decided to divide and conquer to fix different elements of the deal. And in his book, Sujit Indat tells us that Apollo decided to take on the right side of the balance sheet and TPG decided to tackle the left side of the balance sheet, meaning yeah, and physical I, assets and operations.
1: Yeah. And so just to clarify, when we talk about the different sides of the balance sheet, in accounting, there's this equation that says assets, which are on the left side of the equation, equal liabilities plus equity. The liabilities and equity are on the right side of the equation. So if TPG is focused on the left, they're focused on the assets, whereas Apollo is going to be focused on the right side, meaning the liabilities and the equity. TPG,
0: in trying to fix the left side of the balance sheet, basically takes a machete to the business and starts cutting everything. Customer service evaporated, they're destroying Mm -hmm. the brand. And remember brand loyalty was something that they had specifically really prided themselves on at Caesars. The CEO had pioneered this total rewards system identifying what motivated customers to become loyal to the brand. So it was like, hey, I really like gambling. Okay, cool. We're going to charge you full rack rate for the room, but we'll give you some money to go play with in the casino. Or I really like food. Okay, cool. We'll charge you full rack rate for the room, but here's some credits for breakfast, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. They burned through all of that goodwill by taking away service personnel They were literally cutting down to how many people does it take to clean a room and change the sheets, hacking away jobs, cutting at every expense imaginable. And one of the things they specifically didn't spend money on was renovations and (laughs) capital expenditures to help keep these casinos up to date. So talking about, again, what I was concerned about with the Atlantis, which didn't actually turn out to be the case, (laughs) these casinos were like crumbling. And again not only is the economy in shambles, but now who the hell wants to go to this crappy casino and stay in this terrible hotel? You didn't want to spend Mm -hmm. money in the first place. Now you're definitely not incentivized to do it, right?
1: Yeah, and this is actually one of the criticisms that a lot of people have of private equity is that they start Mm -hmm. to squeeze and they start to cut out. Like initially you start cutting the fat and then you start to cut down to the bone because Mm -hmm. as you think about, how can you increase the valuation of a business? The business is valued as the multiple of EBITDA. So EBITDA is your cash flow. Now you can either try to increase revenues Or you can try to cut costs. And so what are they doing? They're trying to cut costs, but they also have this like huge burden with the interest. So they just don't have the cash Mm -hmm. now to spend. And that's what's causing this to fall apart. Sure, they can do some great things. And they talk about how Rowan, you know, got the Britney Spears deal. And like they did some awesome stuff there. At the same time, they also did some not so great stuff. That was not great for the employees, and it was also not great for the business as well.
0: 100%. And then on the right side of the balance sheet, now talking about the liabilities and the equity, that's what Apollo said about trying to work on. And just as you said, they had this massive debt burden. No matter how many costs you cut, you still have to service all of these interest payments to keep this debt alive and avoid an event of default. They needed cash flows from the left side of the balance sheet to pay the interest on the right-hand side of the balance sheet, and those cash flows were not materializing. So what do Mm -hmm. they have to do in order to avoid events of default on their debt? They went through a series of restructurings. We're going to get into more detail on some of these than others, but the bottom line with each of these series of restructurings that makes them so unusual and why we've been hitting you over the head with (laughs) the typical capital structure of a company is that each of these series of restructurings was not designed for the benefit of the people who were at the top of the queue to get paid in the event of a default. Rather, they were done to continue to improve the position of the private equity investors who should have been at the very, very bottom of the stack in the most riskiest position. Each of these series of restructurings was done to disenfranchise the creditors who should have been the ones to be in the best position to attempt any kind of recovery in a bankruptcy. So Caesars really had two options to try to reduce the debt burden on the right-hand side of the balance sheet. The first thing that they could do is actually go and buy back their debt in the open market at a discount. And let me explain how this would work. Remember, as things started to go south for Caesars, the bonds that were trading in the open market started trading at lower and lower prices. You start off at par, but then as it becomes increasingly likely that the company is not going to be able to repay its debts at maturity, these bonds start trading down to 90, then 80, then 70 cents on the dollar. One option that the company has is they could go back to the market, buy back their own bonds at discounted prices, and spend, say, 50 cents to buy back every dollar worth of debt. Now, that's really economically efficient, and it reduces their debt burden, but it requires cash diverted from their capital expenditures, meaning where are they going to get all the money to do this from? They're going to keep taking it away from the casinos and the people who are cleaning them and all the things that are going wrong. They don't have a ton of money to do that. Mm -hmm. Those are already all the things that they are cutting back on. So another solution they have is to now Mm -hmm. offer new debt worth, say, $80 million to debt holders of, say, $100 million worth of debt, maturing something like three or four years later, basically pushing out the maturity horizon of their debt. In exchange for these debt holders being willing to accept 80 cents on the dollar for their $100 million worth of debt and pushing out their maturity horizon, they get to move up in the capital structure and they get higher rates on those bonds. So mm-hmm. now they're getting compensated more. This is right. what's called a distress for control trait. The yep. investor is getting a better position in the capital structure and getting higher yields. Mm-hmm. But what they also now have is they've taken on the debt of effectively a much riskier company that they invested in in the first place. That company could not go out to the open market and originate new debt. It would simply be too expensive.
1: Yeah, and this is essentially what went down in December of 2008, which was literally the same year that they closed the LBO. So Caesars exchanged $2.2 billion worth of existing debt for roughly $1.1 billion in face value. Then in March 2009, now the economy was fully in the throes of a recession. They exchanged another $5.5 billion worth of debt for $3.7 billion in new face value. And simultaneously, the Opco, so Skims and the Propco, or the Kim Calabasas house, they're buying back their existing debt in the open market through that first strategy to reduce the outstanding principal, But so all of this had the impact twofold, right? So number one, it reduced their leverage, which is great, but it also changed the position of the various creditors within the company capital structure, which is going to create a little bit of drama. Um, But what it also did, and this was a footnote, but for people who are kind of like the investment banking nerds out there, like I am, they reduced their leverage, but now they have something called, because they have this debt cancellation, they have a tax liability. You actually have to pay taxes on the amount of debt that is canceled. And they were already mm. low on cash. So this right. actually creates another little problem. But guess what? They were off there like rubbing elbows with the politicians, you know, in Washington. And so, one of the things that then happened is as part of the stimulus, there was some kind of debt avoidance. Or do you remember the exact language, Jen? I don't. I don't remember the exact. But language. yeah, so somehow they were able to not have to pay taxes because of the 2009 massive like stimulus, stimulus package. package. So, which, which is was insane. kind of insane.
0: Yeah, exactly. Just trying to reduce their leverage might have been enough to take them down but because there was this government ex machina that came in. It was like, just kidding. You don't have to pay these taxes anymore. Okay. Live to fight another day. And so instead, instead of retrenching and being like, okay, guys, like how are we going to grow our way out of this? They go into acquisition mode. Because remember, mm-hmm. these private equity firms—they need this equity to explode higher in value over their ownership horizon. They can't just sit idly by. They need to or watch it go down like crazy. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So what do they do at this point? They basically look around at the competition and say, "Well, who else is having a really hard time?" They're looking around on the Vegas Strip and they're like, "Huh, look over there at Planet Hollywood. They look like they're really struggling." Apollo and TPG begin quietly acquiring the junior mortgage debt of the Planet Hollywood Casino. At 50 cents on the dollar, Mm -hmm. they spent something on the order of $70 million to buy 300 million face worth of debt, which they then converted into a controlling equity position
1: in the Planet Hollywood Casino by early 2010. And this, by the way, is exactly what people who are distressed in debt investors do, is they buy bonds at these steep discounts, hoping that they'll have to restructure in some way so that they can ultimately trade in that debt for equity and get ownership. And so it's something when people hear like these corporate raiders, the people who are taking control of the company, they're buying the bonds at these steep discounts and then ultimately starting to get control. And that's exactly what happened with Planet Hollywood is they were able mm-hmm. to turn the Planet Hollywood debt into equity and ultimately were then able to start running the business.
0: Yep. They bought the whole casino. That's exactly yeah. right. And in addition to that, they also bought an Israeli gaming startup, Playtika. Mm-hmm. Uh, and expanded into it. online poker playing, which I don't know if you guys remember, but man, poker was like the thing. And we're going to do an episode on this, but so many of the guys that I worked with who were traders had at one point been professional poker players before <laughs> becoming Wall Street traders. Yeah. Cross-pollination between the gambling world and the
1: trading world is way bigger than you think. Another thing that was interesting was a lot of hedge funds were also getting involved. So yeah. Aren't familiar with hedge funds hedge funds have all different types of strategies but one strategy that a lot of them have is they will try to take advantage of certain situations one particular hedge fund called paulson he made something like four billion dollars and was a huge winner out of the subprime mortgage crisis he also was a huge believer in a vegas comeback story since caesars was taken private he had bought these unsecured bonds for like 66 cents on the dollar because they were the closest thing that he could get to equity but but he ultimately wanted a better trade. So he and Apollo and TPG ultimately went through this exchange and they exchanged the $1.1 billion of those unsecured bonds for 16% of equity in the Hera's, Caesar's parents company. That valuation of $4.5 billion.
0: Even though they're in expansion mode, they're still trying to reduce their debt burden. So one of the ways that they could do that was to raise cash through an IPO. They tried and failed to go public at a $5 $5 billion valuation. So
1: that Shocker, Jen. Collapsed. You're telling the investors? <laughs> they initially invested $6 billion in equity. They're trying to sell shares at a $5 billion equity valuation. Remember, this is not the valuation of the entire firm. Mm-hmm. And the market was basically like, no. <laughs> they
0: ultimately had a 2012 IPO for context, guys, that raised less than $20 million. <laughs> with an M, Which is really sad yeah that's yeah. basically like, okay, cool. Now we can I, I guess like go renovate one hotel room. like <laughs> mm-hmm. seriously. It's continued to go badly. And by 2014, their debt to EBITDA ratio, that one covenant that they had, <laughs> that was at risk of being breached. Their EBITDA mm-hmm. was running in around one and a half billion dollars, which was three hundred million less than the interest expense just at the Opco. All the and by FSA's the way, cash so- was projected to run out the CMBS, all of those mortgages that they'd taken out back in the heyday seven years ago. And it was like, we can get all this financing on the <laughs> PropCo, on all our casinos. That was all coming due. Okay, shit's about to hit the fan. So what do they do? They got to figure out a way to organically grow out of this. They bring on Britney Spears to do her Vegas residency at the Planet Hollywood Casino that they bought that controlling interest in. And so mm-hmm. this… Is when Kristen and I go to Vegas, we Don't go to Britney no, no. <laughs> and we contribute to the Hit bottom me, baby, line of Caesars staying alive. Yep. Okay, But in all seriousness, Britney and her cash flow were not enough to save this, so they had to do now some much crazier restructuring than the good old distress for control maneuvering that they had done in the past. So here's what they did. They decided, and by they, I mean Apollo and TPG, decided to make a new Caesars vehicle called Caesars Growth Partners, okay? They basically made up a new company. Yeah. And they said, hey, this made-up black box, it doesn't have any of the problems of the Caesars parent or the Opco or the Propco. We've now Mm -hmm. just made up a new entity. We're going to put a bunch of cash into it. We are going to raise some new debts. And then we're going to buy assets from the operating company. Remember, from Skims, from the actual vehicle doing all the heavy lifting, which is supposed to be making payments from all of its cash flows to the parent company, we're going to start buying assets from that to prop up this beautiful, free and clear new entity that we can then go and raise a bunch more debt from because it doesn't have any of the legacy (laughs) debt obligations of all of the parts of the company that we built before. Yeah. Now, what is the impact of doing something like this? Well, if you own debt that is backed by the cash flows of the operating company, and you are one of the creditors of the originally structured deal, where's your say in this? Where do you, the valuation of the bonds that you own is going to be impacted. Your ability to get any kind of recourse in a bankruptcy is being stripped away from you because all of the stuff that's worth anything is now suddenly being used to prop up this new clean entity. We are setting up a huge disconnect between the rights of the creditors being disenfranchised for the benefit of the equity holders. This is like Mm -hmm. crazy, unheard of fuckery for lack of a better term.
1: Um, (laughs) I love it. And so this is Apollo and TPG. Although in fairness, it was mostly Apollo. In the book, they talk about how a lot of the crazy shenanigans was really being driven by Apollo. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times TPG, like they would tell them at the last minute. So this is a lot of the creativeness coming from Apollo, specifically, there was this one guy, Mark Rowan, who was painted as this absolute he's one of the killer. co-founders. One of the co-founders. But he's just like this, like, wonderkin, sort of not afraid of pushing the edge of the envelope. And one of the things that we're going to see as we get into some of the shenanigans and the restructuring is when you have these big law firms on your side, They have written some of these covenants. They also can interpret the law differently. So having them on their side, being like, we're going to do this thing that's really sketchy and probably shouldn't be legal, but like, wow, that's not a law. Oh, okay. And so they're able to kind of get away with some of this stuff.
0: Yeah, Yeah. So there is this, that's a really good point, Kristen. So there's this concept called fraudulent conveyance. And this became a question during this very restructuring, because here's what basically they were saying. They were saying that all of these things that were worth some measurable amount, if they were auctioned off in the open market, there would be some kind of efficient process to determine their value. But that's not what's happening. You've got Apollo, who was on both sides of the deal, remember, who owns a stake in Caesar's Parent and who now owns a stake in this new clean company. Mm -hmm. Caesar's Growth
1: Partners, yeah.
0: I want to take assets from the operating company and move them over here. Now, some kind of value has to be exchanged, but how much value? Well, who determines that? Who's going to render those fairness opinions? We've talked in the past before about how it's the job of investment banks to render these fairness opinions. You have advisors for Apollo saying, well, it's worth this. Well, it's worth that, right? Who's advising the creditors for the opco? No one. And Mm -hmm. so the determination of the value of these assets Happens under this very almost cloak and dagger way because there's no fair representation for the creditors,
1: or at least that's how it's portrayed in the book and ultimately in the yeah. court cases that
0: followed. Um, and I and I think and it's that important constitute but, mm-hmm. fraudulent conveyance.
1: Well, yeah, and I think it's important to also understand, like, as an investment bank, when you're working on a fairness opinion, I mean, so much of valuation is art, and mm-hmm. you can. I don't want to say spin things, but we used to joke, right? The valuation you're trying to get is this. Oh, it doesn't look right. Let's, let's tweak the discount rate. And the problem was who was paying the banks the big bucks It's Apollo and TPG, these these private equity firms. That's why I was in the sponsors group. You do so much work for these private equity firms who are doing LBO after LBO, need to refinance after refinance. They pay so much money to the lawyers, to the bankers. So what is the incentive of the bank? They don't want to piss off Apollo. So Apollo wants to have a valuation that looks great so they can transfer the crown jewel, these assets, these casinos to this clean company that they also own at some valuation. There was this one place where they were trying to say that they were going to transfer a casino and the payment was the Opco. Then not having to pay the bankruptcy expenses, preventing bankruptcy and not having to pay that, that was the payment. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, That's what? exactly right. So in this yeah.
0: restructuring,
1: the real crux
0: of it was Planet Hollywood. We just Mm -hmm. talked about that Britney residency. So here's what happened. Planet Hollywood was doing a whole lot of nothing for a long time. Britney's residency came into place, and all of a sudden the forwards just exploded higher. Mm -hmm. But Evercore, who was the bank who was advising the board of directors on the sale of Planet Hollywood from the operating company to the new clean CGP company, didn't update the valuation to reflect the numbers of what Britney was bringing in. They said, Her new residency warranted no change to the valuation projections. So, Planet Hollywood was sold for pennies to Mm -hmm. CPG. And you can take a look at the numbers. One month after this deal closed, Apollo, who again now owns CGP with all of these assets that have been transferred over, shared new projections with the board of directors. Okay. They paid. $360 $360 million for Planet Hollywood and one other casino together. And they also paid something like $525 million for the rights to that Israeli gaming company, the online poker playing. They shared projections one month after this restructuring closed that Planet Hollywood and that other casino together would be worth in three years $839 million up from three hundred and sixty. million And the gaming would be worth $820 million up from 525. They were projecting that on this deal alone, they were going to make $774 million in the next three years. So thanks to Britney, right, basically, the company had gone from the verge of bankruptcy to doubling the stock price from that crappy little $20 million IPO 18 months later. Yet there had been no change in the value of that casino. That's insane. I just want to really hammer home with those numbers how much of a discount they were able to get those assets for. I'm not trying to imply that Evercore did anything illegal, but it seems strange that they would have rendered no change in their valuation projections after Britney's residency was clearly going to be a golden goose. I mean, this is actually where it is.
1: Is it Veep or was it House of Cards? Not sure. Main takeaway is Caesars bought... Plan Hollywood's debt at a steep discount. They were able to essentially get these other casinos as a result of doing this whole distressed debt thing. They then were able to get Britney to come on board, which was a risk. And again, this was a lot of Rowan's, he kind of put skin in the game because a lot of people were worried that that was going to be a bad idea. I mean, it was funny listening to how they talk about her because in my head, she's still like an A-list celebrity. I know she has a lot of issues and there's been a lot of things that have gone on since then. And so for him to take that risk, because I think there was some concern that she was not going to even be able to make it on.
0: She wasn't the icon that she is now. I think she she became
1: fallen into the background in 2012 and 2013. That's true. I do think the residency really helped her come back to the forefront. And they were talking about this too, that one of the things that they wanted to revitalize the business was they really wanted to capture the millennials. And so what better? And obviously you and I are like the poster child because it's like, well, what better than people like you and me who, I mean, we grew up idolizing Britney Spears. Hit me baby one more time. Oops, I did it again. Like that was what we grew up to. So then to go- And be able to spend money in Vegas and go see her. You and I, remember we were trying to get tickets. I remember you called me and you were like, oh my God, I got tickets. And it was the most fun thing ever. It was brilliant on his part. And that was a lot of his doing. Well, he actually your... hired
0: Gary Vanderchak, who was like mm-hmm. this social media entrepreneur yeah. expert to be like, yeah. what do 20 and 30 year old people care about? Right? Like yeah. that was really what they were trying to suss out. And again, yeah. to find Britney... For cheap, right? Think about what actually Britney could have charged, but because she was kind of sidelined and it was like, well, she's not relevant to the young kids these days. Who's going to go see her? She's not an A-lister. It Mm -hmm. Totally
1: turned it around. Well, they learned their lesson because mm-hmm. they also got the Backstreet Boys, which I remember again for my Bachelorette. We were trying to get tickets to the Backstreet Boys because it's another thing, right? Where it's like bye yeah. bye bye. Well, you and you, me, and Kate Berman like doing our okay, little bye, dance bye, like, bye, back bye in is the day. In sync. I cannot oh.
0: believe you just said that. We're which one is which one, I'm one not is editing at? Oh my god! All right, I that's want fine. It that way, I wanted oh, to go see that. Oh my god! Them. I don't even know you anymore.
1: I think that Backstreet Boys is bye bye bye. I'm looking this up. Good luck. Have fun. <laughs> Uh, Stay tuned, listeners,
0: while Kristen digs her grave oh that was everybody that's the song yes and Yay. that's what we made our dance to with Kate Berman. I feel hi bad. Kate we'll get you okay. on the podcast too
1: Anyway, so now we still have a problem. Brittany only kept these guys alive for so long. You still have Opco, you still have Skims, they're running out of cash. Yeah, but
0: Opco so, is now
1: not getting the revenues from Planet Hollywood. True, true. So and Opco they still is are now, on the hook for paying back all their debt. All their debt, all their debt and the interest payments. And the interest yep. payments are kind of like what crush you in the meantime. And you also have these debt payments that are ultimately going to be coming due. So, senior secured debt to EBITDA ratio is essentially set to be breached in 2014. Now, they could declare bankruptcy. But what they settled on was basically taking four properties and trying to sell them to that Caesars Growth Partners, to that clean entity. They were hoping to get $2 billion in cash. So Again, the, the problem here is you have Apollo and TPG that are still on both sides of the deal and no one is representing the Opco creditors. Centerview here is the investment bank that was advising on the fairness opinion in this case. And so the for property deal got done and that's what it was referred to was this for property deal or for property sale. And they gave other affiliates access to the total reward system at no value. Which I mean, yeah. was the huge driver of what made them a successful company in the first place. And again, Opco had no say in this. Opco is staying alive through the deal, but it's definitely worse off. And they're set to lose now $3 billion in revenue and $700 million in EBITDA. From 2014 to 2016, the debt had only dropped by like $185 million because of the increasing need to borrow money to stay afloat. And so the Opco debt to EBITDA is, this This, by the way is, is absolutely mind boggling to me, but it was on track to spike from 14 to 16 times. And I think it ultimately got up to 18 times, which is, which is I, I just, it, it basically is saying it's gonna take you 20 years to pay down your debt. So anything this, over six is anything risky. Anything over, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything over six is risky. I mean, most companies are gonna have some kind of covenant in place where, like, and it's an event of defaults. So if it goes over, call it eight times or something. This is beyond. But anyway, so when the Ford property deals closed, the junior bonds, bonds were trading down. To 12 cents on the dollar, which is bananas. By the way, in a recovery, usually you expect to get, I think, like 70% recovery on the senior debt and like 40% on bonds. They're now trading down to 12 cents on the dollar. And you just can see the effect that this is having now on our the poor, perception, on other creditors. Yeah, yeah. You own the market. bond that
0: you bought for 100 mm-hmm. cents on the dollar and it's
1: worth 12. Okay? Yes, exactly. You and as so- a creditor are paying Yes. And by the way, this is not the only trick that Apollo has up their sleeve. It's not just the four properties deal. They have another thing in the bag. So we know that the bankruptcy is looming. But the question
0: is now, who wins in the bankruptcy? What is the optimal path for recovery in the bankruptcy? Now remember, Mm -hmm. in normal bankruptcies, equity holders get nothing. And creditors are entitled to that, like Kristen said, recovery. Whether it's 30, 40 cents on the dollars or 70 cents on the dollar, you're usually entitled to something, okay? But (laughs) Who's really in charge here? The creditors don't have anyone advising them. They're really just off in no man's land with very little representation. Apollo and TPG are pulling all the strings. So with the knowledge that that bankruptcy is looming, they take one more step. So what they do, and the way that they did this was very complicated, so we don't really need to get that much in the weeds. But let me go back a step. When we talk about U.S. Treasury bonds being effectively risk-free investments, why are they risk-free? Well, they have behind them the full faith and credit guarantee of the U.S. government, which can print money. So how can they default on their bonds if someone can print money to pay them off? Mm. So within the structure of Caesars or within the structure of any company, at the end of the day, there's someone who's left holding the bag and there's someone who is guaranteeing the payments of that debt. When you're trading credit, it's, well, how much do I trust that guarantee? So all of these bonds, all of these loans at the operating company, at Skims, were guaranteed by the parent company. The irony is, is that the parent company, this shell, had nothing in it. It had no assets in it. It had nothing. But that gave the creditors who owned the credit of the operating company some claim to whatever was at the parent company, which was the equity that had been infused from Apollo and TPG. Mm-hmm. So whatever cash is there, whatever values there at the parent, Because of that guarantee in place for the operating company's debt, those creditors had a claim to it. So Apollo maneuvered to sever that guarantee. What they did was citing a recently closed transaction. Again, this gets very much in the weeds with the legal component of it, and it's going to be really interesting to get Sajit's take on it. But what Mm -hmm. they did was they effectively sold options on (laughs) Opco shares, which were worthless, by the way, because we're about to go bankrupt. All right. Mm -hmm. But they sold those worthless options to investors like Paulson, to Chatham, all of whom, by the way, stood to value from their ownership of other parts of the company. They sold these worthless options. And because the options on those shares effectively meant that the operating company was no longer a wholly owned subsidiary of the parent, Apollo's thesis was that this meant that the guarantee. Had been severed, and so yeah. now the creditors at the operating company theoretically
1: had no recourse, which is insane. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. yeah. This is like and so sh- this is, is when shady, the creditors all shit. got
0: together. Yeah, that that <laughs> is like, when they banded together yeah. and said no muss, okay? No muss. They got a bunch of they got the the heavy hitting lawyers, and they effectively decided to litigate this thing through the bankruptcy and stand up for themselves. And remember, the creditors. Yeah. This isn't like oh, you know feeble little creditors. These are big dogs in the industry too, right? Because of their placement within the capital structure, simply don't have the same level of representation and voice and control as the equity holders. Everything originates from that polarity of the capital structure where equity holders have all the risk and all the control and debt holders have much less risk and much less control.
1: Yeah. Well, this is where you start to see the perception of these distressed debt investors who are these like, I almost think of Fight Club, right? They're getting in, they're getting ready. And this is where the House of Cards stuff comes in. There are alliances that are made. There are alliances that are broken. You have people trying to pick off individual people to be like, I want to band together to make sure that we can fight. Because by the way, Apollo is like that 10,000 pound gorilla in the room, so to speak. Yep. They have the deep pockets. They have the fancy lawyers. And so a hedge fund, there's Appaloosa, who is like David Tepper. They, they could be like, well, you know, you know, come for me. But then you have these like little dinky people who are just like, ah, I, I can't fight you. Like, it's yeah, for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Thing. Right. Yeah, like you're, exactly. you're going to be steamrolled over. So this but is where it starts point, to even get like really interesting. Pepper and
0: Appaloosa. When you're a hedge fund, who knows what your lockup periods are? Maybe you have daily lockups. Maybe you have monthly lockups. Maybe you have annual lockups, whatever it is. But you're marking to market your investments, okay? If this stuff starts to go bad, you have to answer to your investors. These private equity Right away, by
1: the way, yeah.
0: Yeah, right away because they can pull their money. These private equity firms, they can be like, oh, just give us longer runway, right? Just just wait. It'll all turn around. And by the way, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's
1: one of the things that we talked about this actually in our private equity versus hedge fund episode. If there is that benefit that you get as a private equity investor. You can buy something. If things go bad, your investors can't pull the money out. You're not going to have a fire sale, like a forced liquidation. And so if you're able to kind of stay around until things recover, you can actually make a lot of money. And ultimately the irony is that Caesars did turn around. However, it did so after like the whole restructuring after was in bankruptcy. place. I mean, if they were able yeah. to push it out even further, I mean, they actually could have made a lot of money. And we talked about this with Singh Blackstone, they were set to lose a ton of money on Hilton. And ended up being one of the best investments that they've made. They made over $10 billion on the investment with Hilton. Because again, they weren't forced to sell at the bottom, which is something that as a hedge fund, you potentially will have to do. It's like, no, no, no. You got to wait three, four, five, six, seven years to get your money out. And to these
0: hedge funds credit, one of the big players in the story was Elliott. Elliott owned a bunch of their debt. And so in order to hedge their risk against this, they bought a bunch
1: of the credit default swaps that were trading on this name. And by the way, who was selling them the credit default swaps? It was... The other investors who were like, there's no chance of a bankruptcy because we've just gotten an infusion of cash. So they were like, well, we know that there's probably not going to be a bankruptcy. So they were selling these short dated CDS contracts and Ellie. was effectively doubling
0: down on your long position mm-hmm. on doing that.
1: Yeah. On being and by the way, credit. that affected the motivations of these players. And again, was a key exactly point right. in the ultimate alliances and what people were doing and the sort of chess moves that they were making. Because it was, it was this massive game of chess of like, I'm going to do this. And then what does that make this other person do? I'm going line to up, line up with this person. Okay, how did the other people react? It was, it was really, really kind of fascinating. but Absolutely. And so we're
0: running out of time here, which is crazy for a three-part <laughs> episode. But we do need to talk about the fact that, okay, these guys actually did go bankrupt, right? So here's the thing. So staring down the barrel of this bankruptcy. And here's the thing that you guys have to understand. The big TLDR about <laughs> this and any other bankruptcy. Whoever basically like yells UNO or yells bankruptcy, whatever it is, when things Mm -hmm. are coming to a head, is the person who has control. Mm -hmm. And so Apollo, TPG, and many of the senior creditors were trying to band together through all these restructurings and ultimately as we headed towards a bankruptcy to disenfranchise the junior creditors and position themselves in the best possible seat to be holding the reins when this bankruptcy ultimately happened. Mm-hmm. Oaktree and a bunch of the other junior creditors who had been pushed into that position <laughs> because of all these restructurings said no mas, banded together, and they were the ones who actually filed for this involuntary bankruptcy, which sent the thing to the courts and made it so that ultimately all of these lawyers and all of these investment bankers and all of the people at the heads of these companies had to then sit there and be like, okay. We think this is where we stand based on all this maneuvering we did. Now someone's actually got to render a verdict. And this is something that I think is so critical to think about, that at the end of the day, remember, we talked about the severing of the guarantee that happened with that B7 deal, but that was all based on an interpretation of a sentence, okay? Mm -hmm. And if that sentence is interpreted one way or another by a judge— Either it completely validates the position that these creditors and equity holders think they have or Mm -hmm. invalidates it and makes all of this maneuvering for naught. So I think that that's something so critical to think about. Here we are, we're in completely dire straits. Kristen, what was the debt-to-EBITDA ratio of this company well, at this point?
1: So at this point, the leverage ratio, so again, debt-to-EBITDA uh-huh. was up to 18 times. That's insane. Which, if you remember, yeah, the initial LBO was at eight times, and even that was aggressive. Mm-hmm. You're probably not seeing LBOs done over seven. So to go to mm-hmm. 18 is mind-boggling. And wow. their interest expense, they literally didn't have enough cash flow, enough EBITDA to pay half a year of interest expense. Their interest expense Unreal. was twice their cash flow. And so their annual free cash flow was actually negative at this point, $1 billion. So mm-hmm. not a great, not a pretty picture. From a financial yeah. standpoint. This
0: bankruptcy was inevitable. It, it happened. And the way that it happened was these creditors banded together and forced the involuntary bankruptcy. Again, the yeah. legalese of this is beyond the scope of this podcast. But this just is where you basically. read the book. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This yeah, is yeah. where read you the read the book. Good plug yep. for the book so you can understand all this. And a good plug for our upcoming <laughs> law and finance intersection <laughs> podcast. We have some of the top, top, top lawyers in this industry coming on this podcast. We're so excited to talk about that. But yeah. it's time for us to fast forward to what actually happened in the final judgment here so you can see who won mm -hmm. who ended up on top and what actually came down in the courts
1: yeah, so let's actually talk about it. So around this time, when they're about to file for bankruptcy, Loveman, who was the CEO, the Harvard professor, he steps down and a new CEO gets put in place. So the new CEO, his name was Mark Fasora. He actually happened to be the former CEO of Hertz, a company that was also bought by a consortium of private equity firms in, I think mm-hmm. it was 2006 or 2007 as well. They actually were initially an example of a success story. There's a great New York Times dealbook article by Andrew Ross Sorkin, where they like spell out how amazing of a success story Hertz was. Now, fast forward a few years and there was some like sketchy accounting shit that went on. Long story short, I guess Mark Vesora probably couldn't have gotten a job at another, a lot of other places didn't want him, but also nobody wanted to be the the CEO of Caesar's. Yeah nobody, yeah, yeah. yeah, nobody wanted to be the CEO of Caesars either. So it was a win-win for everyone. And um, it's a storm for both of them. Yeah, yeah. But this is around the time when actually there starts to be a recovery in Caesars, which is going to be an important point in a minute. So the bankruptcy ultimately took about two years of just all-out mm-hmm. war between the creditors and the private equity firms and like different factions of different creditors and the junior bondholders and the 1st lien bondholders and the 2nd lien bondholders and bank loan. And anyway... They got this really eccentric judge, his name was Goldgar, and the description that Sajid had, it was like he would talk to himself and he like didn't seem to know entirely what was going on. Like <laughs> he would just do a bunch of crazy stuff. But long story short, there was a obviously a ton of back and forth, and they, they would get close a lot of the times to doing a deal. Oak tree ultimately was like really hurt and wanted to make Apollo hurt. So, so it was many not
0: hurt feelings.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like there was like a, like a lot people, of emotions. people
0: kind of yeah, thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, they do end up getting a deal to go through. And in the book, they talked about how it was actually kind of ironic that the bankruptcy was signed a day or two before Donald Trump, who was like the king of debt takes office in um, mm-hmm. 2017. So that was sort of a funny, full circle, poetic justice yeah. type of a moment. So a few interesting tidbits here. The final fees that were paid for by Caesar's estate was something like $273 million. And $79 million of that went to Kirkland and Ellis, the law firm alone. So it took, as we said, it took over two years to go through the bankruptcy, and it was this all-out war. There was a whole bunch of complex exit financings. This is where I highly recommend reading the book if this is something you're interested in. But this, what I thought, was crazy. Crazy. So Elliot, one of the hedge funds, made a billion dollars in windfall on their investment in Caesar's debt. The second lien debt was also; they did really well. So they emerged from bankruptcy October six, two thousand and seventeen. Caesar's creditors, well, because actually, the whole really economy
0: had recovered, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, so it this was is. A-
1: a great well, well, time to be a casino operator. Well, no. So they, they emerged from bankruptcy, but this was the part that was the most insane. So as we said, as the bankruptcy is unfolding, the economy is recovering, and so Caesar's creditors recoveries were basically like given in stock. Remember, we talked about debt for equity control. So mm-hmm. they're getting stock in the Caesar's new parent. And actually, one of the things that happened is the Propco had to come out the other side under a new name. So mm-hmm. they decided to name it Vici after Vidi Vidi Vici. They get stock in Vici now. Vici and the market overall, the share price. Is, is soaring and mm-hmm. so these hedge funds are getting payouts that were way higher than what they had agreed upon in nominal terms so mm-hmm. this actually the second lien bonds that she talks about exemplified this so at the outset of the bankruptcy in early 2015 the bonds were trading at 10 cents on the dollar At the time of the emergence of the bankruptcy, the value was 65 cents on the dollar. And they eventually jumped to a hundred cents on the dollar because of the recovery in Caesar's shares. So that was a 90 cent increase from the bottom or $5 billion in value. So that's where again, Elliot made a billion (laughs) dollars in windfall. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting actually because there's this other quote that Sajid had in the book, which was Mark Rowan and David Samber at Apollo had in a perverse way been vindicated, yeah. right? Caesars was destined to have a comeback and it did okay. when they no longer had to be paying the debt because they're in bankruptcy and there's this recovery that's going on. They're not paying $2 billion in interest or whatever it was. Now all of a sudden they can actually invest in the business and like they turn the business around. But anyway, so he says the only problem was that all the value creation was seized by the creditors. So Apollo and TPG, I forget the exact amount that they lost, but this was not a great investment for them, even though they really, really tried. And this whole story sort of has this like David and Goliath feel where it felt like Apollo was steamrolling all these people. They're trying to make sure they got their money. And ultimately, the creditors were the ones who came out on top. So it was a kind of cool story. And the the main thing that I took away from this is a couple of things. Being someone who had never worked in distressed debt or in restructuring, hadn't worked on those types of deals. What I found so fascinating is we we see parallels with what's going on in some of the drama that's unfolding in the the presidential election. There was this announcement that Colorado is not going to allow Trump to be on the ballot. It's probably going to go to the actual U.S. Supreme Court. But so much of all this depends on the interpretation of, you know, one clause and like, where is the punctuation? Is that a period or is that a comma? Is that an and or is that an or? And the other part that was so fascinating to me was not only how much involvement the judges have, where a ruling by a judge can make or break all of it, but also that when you're learning finance, a lot of it's like, oh, we're going to do a DCF. What's the valuation? That's not what you see here. Here, it's like, sure, you're going to probably do a valuation on the initial credit investment. You want to understand like what's going on with the business and all that. But when shit gets real, it becomes, we need to go to war. We need to get the most expensive lawyers who are going to be able to go to bat, to argue about the footnote, to argue about the freaking period. And we need to fight. And it's taking things to court. It's making these deals. There's so much more than just, I'm going to invest in this and call it a day. There's well, and so the much people more who drama. made The
0: windfalls at the end of the day were the people who had the balls to mm-hmm. say, hey, listen, here's this thing that everyone yeah. else says is garbage. But yeah. I see this potential for massive asymmetric upside. I'm going to take this risk. Because I've done so much analysis and I just have a feeling for the markets and I understand these bonds and I understand these and I understand how they trade and I understand what the
1: potential outcomes could be. Yeah, that, but also the, the people who, as you put it, have the balls to take on Goliath, right? To take mm-hmm. on Apollo and to know mm-hmm. that Apollo is going to do what they can to try to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because, I mean, you could well, think- Well, it wasn't this exactly
0: like I... the little guy taking on
1: Apollo. <laughs> no, that's true. But, but it's still people off. that are, true. But again, there was the hedge funds, you had the mega guys, right? The Elliots, the uh, Opalooza's. The and the, then uh... there and then there were some smaller people. And by the way, part of what happened is you did have different creditors band together yes. and for Alliances, alliances that then would go to right. war against like other alliances. So, I mean, there were some little guys who were in there, but it's not just the understanding of the markets. It's also understanding that there are certain rules but the rules are meant to be broken. Understanding which of those rules can be broken. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And how you can get in court and get a judge to rule a different way for you. So there was a lot of that, which again, I'm really excited to speak to next week, but um, our our legal friends, our law friends who are coming on in January. So I think it's gonna be a really interesting conversation.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for listening, guys. We're excited to join you back in part three. Happy holidays, whatever you're celebrating. Please remember, if you're enjoying this content, to leave us a written five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast, so follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more.